0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, May 29th, 2021. Right now it is Wednesday morning, May 26th, and once again we have our friend Truthvids here to present his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 38 in our series of presentations. In our last presentation in the series, we began to discuss the admonitions of a corrupted priesthood in the words of the prophet Malachi, and again we should note how that corresponds with the warnings of Peter and Jude that a certain cast of intruders and infiltrators had corrupted the assemblies and doctrines of the people of God in ancient times. They also warned that they would continue to do so in the Christian era, from their own time. As we have also recently discussed, both Paul of Tarsus and the Apostle John had described those same infiltrators using different terms, even labeling them as Satan and as Antichrists. Now, in keeping with this same theme, we are going to continue our discussion of the prophecy of Malachi and the corruption of the priesthood for which he had admonished the priests of his own time several centuries before the ministry of Christ. Doing that, we may see that Malachi prophesied concerning the very circumstances in Judea of which Christ had spoken during his ministry, for which he condemned his adversaries and of which the apostles of Christ had written. As we shall also see, some of these prophecies were fulfilled quite explicitly during the ministry of Christ. Hello, TruthVids. Thank you for joining us
1: once again. Hey, Bill. Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks for me. Uh So, yeah, we're on to Malachi, and this time we're getting really into the, the meat of um, all, all the problems, right? And we see how it all went wrong with the Levitical priests. And this also applies to every Adamic civilization. The the exact same thing happened, that um, it would start off as a white civilization and, and then these infiltrators would gradually blend in and then assume the identity of that white civilization. Jew- Jews do it today. They call themselves uh, Spanish, German, English, American, but really they're, they're these infiltrators and it's always happened. And you understand all the problems that during Christ's ministry, why, why they don't all just, you know, universally all accept Christ with open arms, why there's these evil Pharisees and Sadducees, it's because of this. And if you understand this, you, you absolutely understand who the Jews are, who the devil is, uh, the complete origin. And even in our um, Germanic, what would you say, fairy, fairy tales, they even had tales of shape-shifting giants right that could assume the form of uh friends and kin and that it all comes from this from this race mis- mixing essentially right Bill
0: well, well yes I believe so I, I mean Persia and and Assyria and Egypt had all gone down this same path where they began to take wives of Hittite princesses and, and interchange spouses with, with daughters and sons for, for their, to marry their sons and daughters off to these Kenites and, and these descendants of the Rephaim. This is pretty much a clear pattern in history, but it's not very often noticed by mainstream historians that it would be the cause of the demise of men and nations of rulers and nations, so we see it today in the English nobility they've been intermarrying with Jews for two hundred years. The intentions the, the the objectives of the English nobility and and their pursuit of their own interests have long been detached from any care for the English people, which is why England today is being overrun with aliens and, and the nobility is in favor of it because it's, the, the nobility isn't English anymore. It, it was no different with the ancient Egyptian pharaohs that were the spawn of, of these Hittite princesses. They run empires into the ground for their own profit, their own immediate profit and their own advantage so this isn't a a new phenomenon in history it's a very old one
1: and do you think it would help understand why even though Yahweh claims credit for hardening the heart of the pharaoh but even if he was a a bastard then you'd understand why he would absolutely have no care for, for the Egyptian people he was only interested in himself, right, when all the plagues uh, came on, on the people, and he, and he still refused to uh, let the Israelites go, right?
0: Right, the suffering of his own people. He only cared about his own ego, his, the upholding of his own power and authority. So this is proof number 51. Malachi and the Corrupted Priesthood, and this is part two, we we are going to get at least one other proof out of Malachi in in chapters three and four later in the series. So we'll revisit Malachi in the weeks to come. Here we'll conclude with Malachi chapter two. So once again, many of my notes here this evening are actually condensed from parts two and three of my early 2017 commentary on the prophet Malachi, the corrupted priesthood and universalism rebuke, which we will see here this evening. Last week, last week, in our last presentation, several weeks ago, we've had a vacation. We discussed Malachi chapter one. And now we will discuss chapter 2 in respect of the same topic, the corrupted priesthood. Once we see how the priesthood was corrupted, we must once again acknowledge the racial message of the scripture, which leads to the conclusion that the Israelites were white. This will not be an entire commentary, of course, which would be far too long for our conversation here. We'd be doing this for three more weeks. We have already given the historical background necessary. I don't know if you want to run down any of that, but we've already given that background, which is necessary to understand the words of the prophet and how Jacob, speaking of the people collectively, had greater concern for Esau than for himself. How the priests had become contemptible and how Yahweh God would no longer accept their sacrifices. How they have operated in their priesthood for their own gain, just as Christ had condemned the priests of his own time. We discuss the conversions of the Edomites to Judaism as many as 160 years before the start of the ministry of Christ, and how even many of the priests were also Edomites. However, the race-mixing fornication perpetrated by the priests had actually started long before that in the days of both Nehemiah and then Ezra, and although those men made many admonitions, the correction never lasted very long, which is obvious in the history. So with this, we should probably begin Malachi chapter two. I don't know, like I said, if there's anything that you want to um, recap or, or make a memorial of from our last presentations.
1: Um, no, no, I think it's OK. I mean, the main thing here is that that they keep race mixing and Yahweh sends prophets to try and, you know, to explain that they've got to stop it. But, but once you go down that path, it's just const, you know it's just a slope downwards right because they'd have to give up their um their wives and children and and it's really hard right for for people if 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 they're a race mixing and and they're told then you know it's hard for them to let go right if they're in that sin to just give them up and try and marry a, a white woman right well absolutely
0: and 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 or or a woman of their own people and and that's the admission which we see the end of Malachi chapter two, but but I think it's natural for professional priesthoods to lose sight of of the fact of the scope and limitations of their original office, which with the Levitical priests was only for the natural genetic children of Israel, and to want to gain power and rule over more and more people, which is what we see with the Roman Catholic Church from about the 15th century, in the colonial period, when it started forcibly converting the peoples in lands where, where Europeans were colonizing, especially the the, the Spanish and the Portuguese, and did and so, though, especially
1: first. there were less Israelites, and, and there weren't any kings, so less people. So, so the priests would naturally have more power, right?
0: Right, and the priest population. The priests of the intertestamental period basically functioned as the rulers of the nation because there were no kings. But it wasn't until Alexander Janius, and I think, I think he came to the high priesthood, maybe about. 104 B.C. or something like that, it wasn't until him that he was the first high priest that declared himself the king of Judea, a king, and he continued that policy which John Hyrcanus had started before him of forcibly converting the Edomites and Canaanites to, to the religion of Judea, contrary to the commandments in the scripture. So let's start with Malachi chapter 1. And now, O Ye Priests, now these priests had already been reprimanded for polluting the covenant of Levi, for forsaking the covenant of Levi, which is basically the the fact that, that they were to only serve the children of Israel and only marry within their own people. and and other things related to the Levitical commandments. So, this is the result of what we had read in Malachi chapter 1 concerning that. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. The first five verses of Malachi were relative to all of Israel. Then the prophet had explicitly addressed the priests through the balance of chapter 1, And he continues to address them here in this chapter. This chapter explains how the behavior of the priests has degenerated as Malachi had described in chapter 1. Malachi is alluding to events which had already occurred while also describing the circumstances of his own time all while also issuing warnings and making a prophecy of things which would unfold in the future. So he's addressing current and past conditions, and the prophecy is predicated on what result those conditions would have over the years to come. So he continues in verse 2. If you will not hear... And if you will not lay it to heart to give glory under my name, saith Yahweh of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yeah, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. So if they're cursed already, basically they're receiving this admonition, but there's no, there seems to be no recourse for them because they're not going to change their ways. As you had said, it's too difficult for them to, to give up their alien wives, their Edomite or Canaanite wives, and, and to walk the straight path. Once they go down that crooked path, so they're not going to repent. Sometime during the intertestamental period, the priests had even forbid anyone from writing or expressing the name of Yahweh. Here Yahweh already stated explicitly that he would no longer accept their sacrifices. So ultimately, as we had explained earlier in our discussion, how the name of Yahweh would be glorified, this is a challenge to the priest to accept the gospel of Christ. It's a prophetic challenge. Not that they all could, as Christ himself had told his adversaries, that you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. They were already bastards. But that if they did not accept the sacrifice of Christ, we would understand why. And we will see that as this prophecy unfolds. That in the end, if these priests do not accept the sacrifice of Christ. We could look back to Malachi here and understand why they did not accept the sacrifice of Christ. So, even in, in, um, in John, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 12, verse 42, John said, John wrote, speaking of the divisions between Christ and the priests, and divisions among the priests, because not all the priests rejected Christ. John wrote, nevertheless, among the chief rulers, they're the men who run the nation. That's not just the high priests, but it's all of the um, top officers and priests in the nation, those who sit at the Sanhedrin or council and, and who vote on trials and make decisions. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So so these are the mainstream Republicans who just go along with the party in order to get along so that they're not put out of the party and they keep their comfortable positions. Yet they believed Christ in their hearts, perhaps, but they wouldn't admit it because they would be put out of the party. We, We see that. That attitude manifests itself in every infiltrated nation in history. The same attitude, where a lot of seemingly good men who are patriotic, who do love their nation, go along with the policy of the rulers just to get along and to stay in favor, even if that policy is destructive of the nation.
1: And we see um the same thing in the Catholic Church right that um once it got all infiltrated with crypto jews that uh we're here they banned the name of Yahweh that they also started banning uh people from actually reading the scriptures right and and it took you know lots of priests went along with it, but it took very brave men to break away and and try to um translate it and spread it, and they got burned at the stake for it some of them right
0: right the um the De Medici Pope, Giovanni de, de Medici, Pope, who was Pope Leo X during the Fifth Lateran Council, that they had actually passed a a law, a Roman Catholic law, that um, no translation or version of scripture could be printed without the permission of the church, which ultimately would take the scripture out of the hands of the people. Because they didn't want people reading the scripture. Right. And, and that law was defied by many brave men, yes.
1: And, and weren't they doctor, banker, and then pope, Right. <laughs>
0: The De Medici's, yes, that they went from being doctors to bankers to the princes of Florence and on to be popes, popes, and kings, yes. So we see that the reason for the division here in Malachi spelled out. If we want to understand the reasons for the division among these priests in the New Testament, the best place to understand that would be to turn to this prophet Malachi, chapters 1 and 2, and he explains the reasons for these coming divisions. So in chapter 1, it appeared as if the priests had no opportunity to repent, and collectively they didn't. Their their sacrifices were not going to be accepted any longer. And here it seems that they are challenged, they are being challenged to repent. But in truth, at least many of them had no such opportunity at all. Throughout scripture, the enemies of God are challenged to do good, and they always fail. So later here in Malachi chapter 2, we shall also see why the priests ultimately could never repent. And for that reason and others, Yahweh now says to them in verse 3 of the chapter, Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. Which is sort of obscure language in that last clause. So the King James translation is not as clear as that which is found in the New American Standard Bible. So I will read that. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring. Now the King James interpreted that as corrupt your seed. And I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it you will be taken away with the refuse. Now, that refuse is actually a euphemism for dung in that translation. So, according to the prophet Malachi, all of the Jews of today who would claim to be Kohanim, or priests, are a corrupt seed, an offspring which Yahweh would rebuke. The corruption of their seed was a punishment from Yahweh and may be likened to the sin that cannot be washed off, which is how a bastard is described in Jeremiah chapter 2. That dung would be spread upon their faces is an analogy for the shame which they would bear in future generations. So if Christ later says to them, as he did in John chapter 10, that you do not believe me because you were not of my sheep. Malachi is explaining how they were not of his sheep, because they were bastards, which is evident throughout this chapter, and it will be evident further on. For this reason, the rabbis of the Jews, as well as the Jews themselves, should be understood by Christians to be a cursed and a corrupted seed. This manifests itself not only in their deeds, but also in the multitude of peculiar genetic diseases which they transmit to their own offspring in every generation. Jews have more peculiar genetic diseases and medical disorders than any other people. So even today, Christians should regard all those who deny Yahshua Christ as if they have dung spread upon their faces. When you're looking at a a Jew and especially at a rabbi, think about Malachi chapter 2. Think about that rabbi's ancestors having rejected Christ for 60 generations or 80 generations or however long it's been and that's the dung spread upon their faces. Maybe that's what gives them those large, peculiar noses, at least many of them, I'm ju- like giant mushrooms sprouting up. I'm making a silly analogy, I'm sorry.
1: And, and remember that, that video of, of the Jew picking up the note and he seemed to enjoy the smell of, of the dung on the, on the note we, we spoke a few weeks ago.
0: Oh, that that yeah, that candid video. That was wow. That was kind of funny, but it it yeah it was kind of characteristic also. So now we see an explicit statement that these priests are not of Levi, because if the, and and maybe I precipitated myself thinking this was in chapter one before when I made my remarks earlier. But that's okay. It's here, and that's even better, perhaps. These priests are not of Levi, because if they had accepted Christ, they would no longer be Jews or priests in a Levitical or rabbinical sense. That This proves that these Jews, these Jewish Kohanim, that these um, Jewish rabbis are not authentic Levitical priests. And in verse 4, we read, And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. Now, if the offspring of the priests were going to be corrupted, and Yahweh says, You shall know that my covenant might be with Levi, then the priests, which the prophet addresses in this manner, could not have been maintaining the tribal distinction of Levi and the command for the tribe of the priests to remain separate. The priests of the time of Nehemiah and Ezra were Levites, who had several times already been chastised for their race-mixing fornication. The words of Malachi are prophetic. He is apparently addressing priests who were Levites, but in their own race mixing and disdain for Yahweh their God, their seed would be corrupted as a result of their sin, and they would know from their sin that Yahweh's covenant was with Levi, meaning that the covenant could not be inherited by their own corrupted seed. That's clear to me, anyway. These priests whom Malachi censures had no fear of the name of Yahweh their God, and once their seed is corrupted, all hope of repentance is lost. Now they are contrasted to Levi, where it says, My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave to them To him, for the fear wherewith he feared me, and was afraid of my name. In chapter 1, Yahweh charged the priests and said, O priests that despise my name! And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? And then an analogy was made, that they despised his table and his altar, sacrificing upon it things unworthy to be sacrificed. So here the meaning of the analogy begins to unfold, as the priests themselves are warned that they will have corrupted seed, or seed that would be rebuked. Malachi must be speaking of the priests of his own time, who are Levites and yet they disdained the law of God, accepting the persons of the other races in communion and marriage, as we had seen in Nehemiah chapter 13 and in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. Then the result of their punishment is a prophecy, that their seed, which are the future generations of these same priests, shall be corrupted or rebuked. Not all of the Levites were priests, But the priests were the Levites of the descendants of Aaron. And the balance of the tribe of Levi were given other administrative duties in the kingdom outside of the service of rituals in the temple. However, the priests were held to the highest standards in the law. They were forbidden from taking wives of other tribes or who were divorced or who were not virgins, although other Israelites were not expressly forbidden those things. Here in Malachi, this punishment is announced, and it says, that my covenant might be with Levi. So the priests are told that their punishment is due because they forsook these laws of marriage and had began taking wives of other tribes. It makes no sense that Yahweh punished them so that they might know that my covenant might be with Levi unless they were in unless they were marrying outside of their own tribe. They committed this sin on several occasions, in the days of Nehemiah and again only a few decades later in the days of Ezra, and had apparently attempted on both occasions. But this time, they are being cursed. And as the prophet had written in verse 3 of this chapter, for that reason, dung will be spread upon their faces, and their seed will be corrupted. In in the laws of God, in Deuteronomy, the father isn't punished for the sins of the son, and the son is not punished for the sins of, of the father that's actually in the law so here the seed of these priests is going to be rebuked or corrupted depending on how you want to read that verb according to the king james version or the north american standard version
1: so, so because you, you of you the link this directly to where john and christ say uh, sons of vipers right This is exactly it right here.
0: Absolutely. The sons, the descendants of these priests, are going to be corrupted or rebuked on account of the actions of these priests. That could only be because they were bastards, according to the law, because the law would forbid the sons from being punished on account of the sins of the fathers. I think that might be Deuteronomy chapter 25, I'm not sure, off the top of my head. As an organized group, it seems here that all hope is lost for the priesthood. And it is. Their their, their sacrifices are no longer going to be accepted. As in Malachi chapter 1 the word of Yahweh had announced that his name would be glorified among the nations in spite of the sins of these priests. However, here it seems that individuals from among the priests are given a chance to remain in the grace of God, where it says in verse 2 of this chapter, that if you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith Yahweh of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you. Now, in the subsequent verses of this chapter, of Malachi, we shall see the fate of the priests who disobeyed the law in this regard. And we will also see a parable for what was about to happen to the 70 weeks kingdom as the remnant of Judah was destined to mingle with the Canaanites and Edomites of Palestine. And we see in history, as we've explained here at length, that that is indeed what they did. So first, the words of the prophet continue to describe Yahweh's relationship with Levi. In verse 6, The law of truth was in his mouth. And iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity." And this seems to be more descriptive of the tribe of the Levites than it is of Levi himself, of course, as the names of the patriarchs are used in Malachi to represent the tribes of their descendants as Jacob and Esau were in Malachi chapter 1, in those opening verses. So here, in in verse 7, this view is substantiated, where it says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, speaking of the actual Levite, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. So Levi himself never received the law. He died before the law was given at Mount Sinai. But his descendants received it, and they were given the responsibility of administering the law to the people. During the kingdom period, the priesthood of Aaron was, ch- was the chosen vessel through which Yahweh spoke to his people. Most of the prophets were of Levi, not all of them, but most of them. They possessed the breastplate of judgment, the Urim and the Thummim, and they were the primary keepers, and teachers of the law, while the Levites of the various communities throughout the countryside also had a role in that task at the weekly Sabbath congregations, where they also served as judges of the people. Most of the prophets of Scripture did not mention their tribe, but many of those which can be identified were of Levi, Daniel, and Amos, are apparent exceptions, and of course, David and Solomon, who should also be counted as prophets. Malachi compares the ideal presented to the priests, who are the subject of this prophecy, and we must remember that since this is a prophecy, the priests he intends to describe may be his contemporaries, but they may also be in his future. And he's saying to these priests in verse 8, In comparison to the Levites, but you are departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. So once again, it is stated that the covenant of, of priesthood between Yahweh and Levi was corrupted ostensibly because the priests were mingling with the surrounding Canaanites where Yahweh had said in verse 5 that my covenant might be with Levi. So there must be priests who aren't of Levi that Yahweh is rebuking. Maybe some of them are already bastards here. And that's why Malachi is rebuking certain of these priests because they're already bastards. They're already corrupt. Or he's speaking of future times, and they will be bastards, and they will be corrupt, because he's telling them, I will corrupt your seed, or rebuke your seed, which seems to make more sense. I will rebuke your seed. Why would he rebuke their children, who are Levites, if their children are Levites, for their actions? He's rebuking them. No, he would rebuke the children because they're bastards. There's no other plausible explanation that my covenant might be with Levi. Those two statements add up to the fact that these priests of the future are going to be bastards.
1: And and Bill, if the Levitical priest is corrupted, it's inevitable that the whole nation will, will be corrupted then because... Uh, They'll look to the priests, the priests to teach them the law, right? And if, if they're bastards, they're going to start promoting race mixing straight away, right?
0: Right. If the priests are race mixing, then they're setting the example for the people. That's why there's two laws that there's Deuteronomy, which was the copy of a copy of the law. That's what it means basically, a copy of the law. That now some Jews interpret that as meaning second law. It's not really the second law. It's the law for the people. And and there's Leviticus, which is the law for the priests, which sets a higher standard. But If we are a kingdom of priests, that's the standard that we should all strive to attain. It sets a higher standard because a a man of Israel was permitted to marry a woman that was divorced or a woman that wasn't a virgin. And as long as he was happy with her, he could keep her. And that was fine. But the priests were required to marry virgins of their own tribe, and that's explicit in Leviticus of the priests. So in a lot of ways, the priests were held to a higher standard.
1: Yeah, and you couldn't be a priest, and then when you go home, be like cheating with, with someone else's wife, right? You have to live what you're actually preaching.
0: Right. But a lot of other aspects of Leviticus were supposed to be what the priests were to teach the people. So it's not only for the priests, right? But yes, the priests are held to a higher standard in the law in Leviticus. So if they're race-mixing and they're accused of causing many to stumble at the law, it seems that the priests were condoning these and other sins among the people. While the special relationship which Yahweh had with Levi began to develop in the book of Exodus, and was apparent throughout the book of Numbers, it is summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 10. At that time, Yahweh separated the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, to stand before Yahweh, to minister unto him, and to bless his name unto this day. Wherefore, Levi has no part nor inheritance with his brethren. Yahweh is his inheritance, according as Yahweh thy God promised him. And that's representative of the covenant which Yahweh had with Levi. Where the warning of punishment continues here in Malachi, it seems to indicate that a process is about to unfold by which these priests would fall into a degraded and contemptible state, and we read in verse 9, Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Now, there is a little-noticed aspect of the New Testament period of Judea, which indicates that the people did hold the priesthood in contempt, that they did become contemptible. And it's little-noticed because it's hardly mentioned in Scripture. But in the book of Ezekiel, in the opening chapter, and in Acts chapter 16, In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas arrive in Philippi, we see that where there was no proper assembly, Ezekiel was a prophet of the captivity. And when his book opens, he is praying by the river Habor. Because there were no synagogues in captivity. That's why he was praying by the river. It's the same thing in Philippi. When Paul and Silas go to Philippi, there's no synagogue there. So where do they go? They go to the river. And they meet these Hebrew women praying by the river. Lydia and her friends. Her companions. So. It's evident that where there was no proper assembly, the Hebrew people were accustomed to gathering by the river to pray. So. If the first century Judeans distrusted the priests in their temples and synagogues, that would explain why John the Baptist, and later Christ and his apostles, were so successful in finding willing listeners by the rivers of Judea on the Sabbaths. That explains it. That also explains why the priests are going down to the rivers on the Sabbaths, because that's where the people are the people should have been gathering in the synagogues on the Sabbath, and they weren't. They were gathering by the rivers. It must be because they held the priests in contempt, as it says here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 9. That's why John the Baptist didn't go to synagogues to try to baptize. He was in the river, and the people came to him. (laughs) That's why. (laughs) So, The prophecy of Malachi represents the last words of Yahweh God among those which were preserved in the Old Testament. And demonstrably, they are the last of the inspired words of Yahweh between the time that the 70 weeks kingdom was initiated and the time of the birth of Christ. So the Levitical priesthood, as it stands in the New Testament, must be seen through this lens. You can't understand the condition of the priests in the New Testament unless you understand Malachi chapters 1 and 2 because it's prophesying the condition of those priests in the New Testament. The next time we see priests. The priests of the time of Christ were suffering from this very punishment which Yahweh had announced through the prophet Malachi. Therefore, If over 400 years before the birth of Christ, the last words of Yahweh in the Old Testament had warned the priests that I will even send a curse upon you, and I will corrupt or perhaps rebuke your seed and spread dung upon your faces, and I will carry you away at the same time. And then four centuries later, these same priests had despised and opposed the very Messiah which was promised to them in the scriptures. And if in turn that Messiah informs them that you are not of my sheep because the priestly covenant was with Levi, then it is not hard to perceive that the priests who opposed Christ must have been the corrupted seed of these same cursed priests here in Malachi as they were the descendants of these priests here in Malachi.
1: Yeah, there's no other explanation, right? Right. Why they would reject Christ unless they're bastards.
0: And God's covenant was with Levi, meaning that the seed of these priests wasn't. Of the tribe of Levi, they were corrupted, because these priests had been race mixing, and forsook the covenant of Levi. It's I, I wrote that it's not hard to perceive this, but maybe I should have wrote, it's hard not to perceive this. And if the seed of these priests was to a great extent corrupted, and the whole nation joined to the Edomites and Canaanites, which they did, we cannot expect better of the seed of the people, many of whom the priests themselves had caused to stumble at the law, as it says here in Malachi. The priests, being partial in the law, were not keeping the whole law but were choosing for themselves what to adhere to and what to neglect, just as Christ had accused them throughout the gospel of hypocritically pretending to keep the law because they didn't keep the whole law. So now what follows in verse 10 of this chapter is an allegorical dialogue representing the results of their hypocrisy, where the words of Yahweh attribute to these same priests rhetorical questions. This is a dialogue now that these, what I'm about to say are rhetorical questions in the mouths of the priests, which are an answer to all of these charges against them in these first nine verses of Malachi. So in verse 10, the priests are answering and they say, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? When you race mix, you're actually dealing treacherously against your own brethren by introducing alien races into your line of descendants. Yeah, people the children will
1: grow up with them, right, in, in their neighborhood and get used to them, and, that, and that's poisoning them, their, their perspective, right? Well, absolutely. So here in
0: Malachi, we actually have a prophecy of the very dispute which became manifest in the ministry of Christ. This prophecy in Malachi presages the events recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? So in John chapter 8, we see a lengthy exchange of words between Christ and his opponents, who were chiefly from among the priests. And he says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then we read the response. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed. Now, an Edomite could claim that. And we were never in bondage to any man. Now, an Israelite could not claim that. An Edomite could claim to be an Abraham's seed. Could claim to be Abraham's seed. But the Israelites were in bondage. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were in bondage in Assyria. These priests that returned to build the second temple... They were in bondage in Babylon? They were in bondage. But these priests say, We be Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? So the children of Israel, the legitimate children of Israel, could never say that. Throughout their history, they had recorded their own bondage of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. No Israelite escaped the bondage of Egypt and very few escaped the bondage of the Assyrians and Babylonians. These priests did not seem to understand the history to which they laid claim of a heritage, or that they had no part in it. Even the Edomites were in bondage to the kings of Judah for many centuries, as were the remnants of the Canaanites. But these priests seemed oblivious to the history of Israel, and that fact can't be denied.
1: So they gave the game away, the bill, in their own statements, right? Their own words.
0: Well, absolutely. But they could claim to be the seed of Abraham. And if they were Edomites, that's true. A little later on in John chapter 8, Christ admits that they are descendants of Abraham. And he tells them, I know that you are Abraham's seed. Now, if somebody's a bastard, they're still Abraham's seed, but they're bastards. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The Edomites were of Abraham's seed, as were the children of Ishmael, Katorah, all three of Judah's sons with the Canaanite wife. And while all of them are children in the flesh, that does not make them all the children of the promise. For instance, in Romans chapter 9, where he is speaking of the apostates in Judea, Paul of Tarsus expresses concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh, for those who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. And then he says, not as though the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And then immediately after that, Paul compares Jacob and Esau and explains for us the implications of what we find in the histories of Josephus and Strabo, that the Edomites became mingled with the Judeans and had adopted all of the customs and identity of the Judeans. So, in the same manner, Christ could admit that they were Abraham's seed, which is offspring, and then he could deny that they are his sheep, because not all of them of Israel are really Israel. And Paul's telling us the others are Edomites, and that was true. We see that in the histories. So, Paul says in that same chapter of Romans... Romans chapter 9, in verse 7, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, Ishmael, the children of Ketorah, Esau, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise In Isaac shall thy seed be called, the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So, of all the sons of Abraham, which include the children of Sarah, Hagar, Keturah, only the sons of Isaac are counted for the seed. And in that same place, Paul immediately goes on to explain that of the children of Isaac, that only those of Jacob inherited the promises, being vessels of mercy while those of Esau were hated, being vessels of destruction. And Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1 to to show that. In Genesis chapters 26 through 28, because Esau took wives of the Canaanites, Isaac had told Jacob to marry a wife of his own people, and the promises to Abraham would come to him, so that is what he did. So, making that comparison, Paul cites this very prophecy of Malachi, repeating the words of Yahweh, where it says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. So, while the Ishmaelites, Edomites, and the others of the children of Abraham are children of the flesh, only the children of Israel are the children of the promise, who, as Paul says, are Israelites to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. If everyone in Judea were an Israelite, Paul would have said none of those things. If every Judean was an Israelite, none of those things would have made any sense for Paul to even have mentioned. So then, in the next passage of John chapter 8, Where Christ admits that they are the seed of Abraham, Christ denies them any status as children of God. Where he said, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. So while the opponents of Christ may have been physical descendants of Abraham, at least in part, they were not actually Abraham's children, because Abraham wouldn't claim a bastard. Reading the accounts of Jacob and Esau, the only thing that Esau had done, which displeased his parents, was to take wives of the Hittites. That account begins in Genesis chapter 6. We can't possibly repeat it here. But in the end, in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 8, chapter 28, I'm sorry, it is fully apparent that Esau despised and lost his birthright for the sole reason that he married wives from outside of his of his own race, and selling it to Jacob for a bowl of porridge really only commemorated the loss. Paul of Tarsus substantiates this observation in Hebrews chapter 12, where he calls Esau a fornicator or profane person, the word fornicator being a label for a race mixer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul called the episode where the sons of Israel joined themselves to the daughters of Moab, fornication. And in Jude 7, the apostle describes fornication as the going after of strange flesh. That word strange referring to different flesh. It means different. The biblical requirement for proper marriage is found in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam had no suitable wife and Yahweh created Eve, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. That's the biblical marriage. So, in the balance of John chapter 8, and I know I'm belaboring this, but we're going to hit home real soon. In the balance of John chapter 8, verse 41. After Christ had denied his adversaries' status as children of God, the priest protested. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. So here we see the very historical fulfillment of this prophecy of Malachi, where we read in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. After the priests had transgressed the law and the covenant of Levi, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? This is the the, the fulfillment of that, where these priests say to Christ, we have one father, even God. And they ins- that's their insistence, and Christ denies them that God is their father. Being mixed with the Edomites and Canaanites, they were indeed born of fornication, but did not recognize it because they were partial in the law.
1: Uh, the- uh, Bill, this is um, something you'd really want people to understand, right? That um, if you do race mix, that your own descendants— would actually kill christ if he came that they would reject god even if you you raise them that your bastard children would not accept yahweh or, or christ no matter what you do and that's one of the many reasons why you should not race mix right that if people understood this they would they would truly get it and this is the inevitable outcome this this prophecy right that they all claim to be the same race but but they're not you know if you get what i mean
0: well well absolutely and and just like Cain slew Abel because sin lieth at the door because he was a bastard and and even the ancient Greeks understood this that they I, I think it was Hesiods the tragic poet it might have been Euripides I might be confused but he wrote that and I've cited this in podcasts before where where I probably got it right whether it was a Heeschylus or Euripides, but but he put into the mouth of one of his characters in one of his poems, in in a play, that the son is forever an enemy. The bastard is forever an enemy to the true born, is how it's worded. The bastard is forever an enemy to the true born. It's inevitable.
1: Yeah, and, and all these Christians who think they can uh, race, make, and um, raise Christians, well, if they, if they read this prophecy, it's telling them that, you know, if, if 400 years later, those descendants would all reject Christ, right? That Absolutely. doesn't matter what you do, what, what church you set up, that it does matter, and, and that's what they need to understand. Absolutely.
0: As for the treachery to priests, I'm not going to um, get into it in depth, but it'll be here in the notes, and I've cited this before in podcasts. Flavius Josephus had described how, in, in Antiquities Book 20, how the priests at Jerusalem were actually even stealing, going out and forcibly taking the tithes that belonged to the Levites, to the true Levites, in the suburbs. That the priests in the temple would send out their henchmen into the suburbs to go to the Levites and take their tithes back for the priests in the temple. The tithes that the Levites, what were what were accustomed to living from. That's how they lived. They had no the land. And they were stealing their tithes and the priests were starving. That The Levites were starving and, and the priests were rich in, in Jerusalem. And and that, that's another way, that's in Antiquities Book 20, that, that's another way that we see the treachery of these priests and, and how they despise their own brethren, or, or at least the Levites that were supposed to be their brothers.
1: You mean the ones that race mix, their descendants, would uh, go and do this and destroy the other Levites, pick on them and steal from them?
0: Right. These Sadducees organized that. The Sadducees were the high priests, and they organized the plundering of the tithes from the Levites in the suburbs and the countryside. And Josephus wrote about that in Antiquities Book 20. And that's not long after the time of Christ, or, or perhaps right around the time of Christ, the, the events of that book. These questions in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 are rhetorical. And unless one understands rhetoric, he may take an assumed but incorrect answer for granted. And that's what the denominational pastors do in Malachi chapter 2. Have we not all one father? And they insist that proves that we all have one father, that God is everybody's father. And they're wrong. That's not the way to interpret this. Where it asks, have we not all one father? Has one God not created us? The answer to each question is no. It's evident in John chapter 8, and it's evident in the verses of Malachi which follow. Then where it asks, why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? The answer is also evident that they were bastards and not true Levites, because they are the corrupted seed which had issued from those priests who broke the covenant of Levi. And this is evident right here in the verse which follows in Malachi chapter 2, verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. Now, Judah, the patriarch, married a Canaanite woman several hundred years before the Israelites ever had control of Jerusalem. So, while Judah might be a model for this sin, which Esau also committed, this verse is not speaking of Judah in particular. Rather, it is referring to the tribe of Judah, because it refers to Jerusalem. Although, it is also using the sin of the patriarch Judah as a type, for how the remnant of the tribe of Judah in Jerusalem had later transgressed. So the questions are answered in Malachi chapter 2, verse 11 where it says that Judah had married the daughter of a strange God. There is the answer of Yahweh, that we do not all have one father, and one God has not created all of us. As Christ told his opponents, every plant which my heavenly father had not planted shall be rooted up. Therefore, There must be people on earth which Yahweh God did not create, of whom he is not the Father, just as Christ had said. Certainly Yahweh created all things, all of those things which are described in Genesis chapter 1. But he is not to be held liable for the sins of men and angels. Yahweh did not create bastards. You can't blame your sin on God. And therefore, Malachi chapter 2 is also a complete rebuke of universalism, especially once it's seen in its proper light, along with the words of Christ in John chapter 8, because Malachi is a prophecy of the coming Christ, and that is revealed in chapters 3 and 4 of Malachi, which we will speak of in a later date. So the truth is that these priests, speaking of these priests in John chapter 8, God was not their father. And God did not create them, ostensibly because they must have been bastards, as all of the Edomites and Canaanites were bastards. And when you put that together here with Malachi chapter 2 and what this says in verses 10 and 11, this is absolutely clear. You can't deny this. The priests of the time of Christ only descended in part from Abraham. So they were not truly his seed, even if they could claim to be his seed. So Christ rebukes them again, and we read in John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You were of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And I'll stop my. Quotation there, the only murderer from the beginning was Cain. And to be the children of this murderer, the opponents of Christ must have been descendants of Cain as well as descendants of Abraham. It is not that they worshiped Cain or sinned in the manner of Cain, but rather that they were the children of Cain. An accusation which Christ repeated in Luke chapter 11, where Christ often called them offspring of vipers, he was calling their parents vipers, not merely his adversaries themselves. So they weren't spiritual vipers, they were genetic vipers. That phrase, offspring of vipers, proves that. How could he call their parents vipers? Did he know that their parents were bad people, too? These are old men he's speaking to. Maybe their parents were dead. They were still vipers.
1: And and it's just like all those Jews who married into royalty, that they could claim partial descent from those royal bloodlines. But they're still vipers as well, right? Bastards. It's exactly the same uh, today.
0: Every, and every Jew should be looked at the same way as the offspring of vipers. Their parents are vipers because they descended from these people. Yes. And, and we see in Malachi when it started. It started long before the ministry of Christ, this race mixing. So for first-century Judeans, there were two main avenues by which they could be offspring of vipers, by which, they could be, by which they could be not legitimate seed of Abraham. And we've in the past only discussed one of them. But here in verse 12 of Malachi chapter 2, the word of God shall reveal the other avenue, an avenue which is much older and even more treacherous because it strikes much closer to the substance of many of the people of Judah. But it was not even readily evident to them. So we see in verse 12, Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. And this evokes the words of Christ as they are recorded in Luke chapter 13, in a passage which in turn evokes the children of Israel taken into captivity for idolatry, who nevertheless remain the children of God. Christ said, when the when once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying lord lord open unto us and he shall answer and say unto you i know you not whence you are then you shall begin to say we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and Thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourself thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to put this on hold for a second. I should elaborate on what I had said about this older path, whereby at least some of the priests were apparently mixed. In Daniel, in the apocryphal portions of Daniel, in Susanna, There are priests who seek to spoil a young woman. And they failed because Daniel had been able to cross-examine them and reveal that they were lying. And when that happened, Daniel announced that it was the seed of Canaan and not of Judah. If we go back a few years before Daniel to Jeremiah... We read in Jeremiah chapter 2 that the people of Jerusalem had hewed hewed themselves out broken cisterns which could hold no water. Who were planted a pleasant plant but grew up a strange vine. Who could take themselves much soap and not wash the sin from their faces. And because Judah had a Canaanite son, there was always a degree of race mixing in Judah with the Canaanites. And that is in both Jeremiah chapter 2 and in Ezekiel chapter 16, one of the causes attributed to the demise, the corruption and demise of ancient Judah. So Judah has always had this problem, because Judah himself had married the daughter of a strange God, Judah always had this problem underlying in the background, these race-mixed people of Judah and, and evidently the priests of that time. And we see that manifest in these words in Malachi, as well as this being a prophecy that Judah, the people would marry the daughter of a strange God. And that happened when they began to convert the Edomites and Canaanites in Judea. So, as I said, Malachi speaking of existing circumstances, but he's also speaking a prophecy of what was going to come in the future. And we put Malachi together, Malachi chapter two together with John chapter eight. And it's very clear. That these priests are the product of these centuries of race mixing, and that's why they rejected Christ, and Christ also rejected them. Get away from me! I never knew you. Even though they ate and drank in His name, even though they
1: bastards uh, in, in amongst Judah, right from the beginning, right?
0: Right. So there were always some bastards in Judah which we see in the history of the Old Testament and, and the prophets Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel.
1: There uh, were always... To that, um, if you race mix, you hate your race because you're going <laughs> to leave these line of bastards potentially for centuries you know, amongst your people and, and, and some of them might not even realize, right? They might marry someone and think that they're white and then you've destroyed them.
0: Right. Absolutely. It's a cancer. It's a cancer in the body of a nation. And the bastards are never going to have the same care for their people and and nation than the true born. The bastard will forever be an enemy to the true born. And that's a lesson of Scripture. Which we see right from the beginning. Genesis chapter (laughs) 4. So now we read in Malachi verse 13. And this you have done again. And what have they done again? What does it say in Malachi chapter 2 verse 11? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh whom he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. So, (coughs) verse 12 is is a warning that Yahweh will cut off the man that does this. And in verse 13, it says very plainly, And this ye have done again covering the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regards not the offering anymore or receives it with goodwill at your hand. So we tie back to the the, the offerings that won't be accepted in Malachi chapter 1, which we explained the reasons for when we presented that by saying that it would be manifest that it was all about race-mixing in Malachi chapter 2, and here it is, Malachi 2.13. So, what did they do again? They did what Judah did, was described as doing, in verse 11, marrying the daughter of a strange god. They were race-mixing. So, Malachi says, this they have done again. They did it in the days of Nehemiah, they did it in the days of Ezra, and here they have done it yet again. The priests of the second temple in Jerusalem committed fornication and race mixed, and that is the reason for the rejection in the time of Christ. That rejection was mutual. It wasn't just the Jews rejecting Jesus, Christ rejected them. He told them, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. He told them, you are not the children of God. He rejected them again and again and again. Today's modern churches only say that the Jews rejected Jesus. They never say, they never teach on all those verses where it is absolutely clear that Christ rejected the Jews. Christ rejected them just as they rejected Christ. And they had no hope of repentance As we read in John chapter 10, Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe me not. The works that I do, I do in my father's name. They bear witness of me, but you believe me not because you are not my sheep as I said unto you. When did he say that? Well, this is John chapter 10. He said it in John chapter 8, that they were not Abraham's children, that they were not the children of God. And they knew what he was talking about because they said we weren't born of fornication. They knew he was talking about the fact that they were bastards, but they denied it.
1: Yeah, they understood it, but today our priests they our priests don't understand it, right? They
0: don't want to understand it. <laughs> they don't even want to think about it. And they're advocating race mixing today. In the closing verses of Malachi chapter 2, the priests are accused of dealing treacherously against the wife of thy youth, the wife of the covenant. The priests were fulfilling the role of Yahweh, the husband of Israel, in their service to the children of Israel. That's how Israel is the wife of their youth and the wife of the covenant. But they've dealt treacherously against Israel by race mixing. Then there's a similar personal message. Because customarily, parents arranged for wives for their sons from of their own kinsmen, yet these priests, in their maturity, took strange wives. Then, later on in Malachi chapter 2, there's a reference to Yahweh seeking a goodly seed, a goodly offspring. So we see that, once again, the bastards would ultimately be rejected by him because they weren't a goodly offspring. How do you make an offspring that's bad? As Christ said, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, but a bad tree can produce good fruit. This prophecy of Malachi is a notice as to why the priests were rejected by Christ in the New Testament. And he rejected them many times before they rejected him. But as we have also said, the names of the patriarchs in this prophecy are being used to represent the tribes themselves. So at the same time, Malachi is prophesying prophesying of what is to become of the priests of the intertestamental period. And also of the whole nation of Judah, or Judea. That is, Judah joined himself to a Canaanite. The nation, in turn, was to marry the daughter of a strange god and absorb the Edomites and Canaanites of Judea into their polity, which is what they started to do from the time of the days of Hyrcanus, which was around 129 B.C., they started to convert the Edomites and the other Canaanites to Judaism and treat them as Judeans. And they became citizens of Judea and started to intermarry with all the other Judeans, with all the legitimate Judeans. So the people we now know as Jews are those whom Christ said were not his sheep and who for that reason had re- they had rejected him because they're Edomites and Canaanites. They're all bastards. Malachi makes that very clear.
1: Adam was the son of yeah, God. Happened, e- um, sorry, four hundred years before Christ. Uh, then certainly now, yeah, two, over two thousand years, there's not going to be a single, uh, you know, Judean who, who's legitimate anymore, right? If it already was messed up back then. Well, well, right. I, I
0: mean, Paul's prayer in Romans chapter nine is for his kinsmen according to the flesh, the true Israelites in Judea, that they would come to Christ, and therefore they weren't going to suffer the things that those who rejected Christ were going to suffer, as he said in Romans chapter 16, speaking to the Romans, that God would crush Satan under your feet shortly. Paul anticipated, just as it's prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, Paul anticipated the destruction that was going to come upon the Judeans because of what they did to Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem, that Satan would be crushed under the feet of the Romans. And he wrote that 13 years before it happened. He wrote that epistle to the Romans around 57 B.C. 57 AD, I'm sorry, and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So Paul was praying for the true Israelites in Judea that they would repent, come to Christ, and and escape what was going to happen to them. From that time, all the Judeans, whether they were Israelites or Edomites, had maintained that had maintained their um, distinction as Jews, would intermarry and intermix with each other. And, and, And the Judeans of the synagogue throughout the Roman world, if they didn't come to Christ and become Christians in the centuries which followed, they too would become being mixed with these Jews. And that's been a process throughout the last 2,000 years. No, there can't possibly be a Jew that's an Israelite after 2,000 years of intermixing with these Edomite bastards, as they've done.
1: Yeah, exactly. And Paul didn't, absolutely didn't care about the Edomites. He was indifferent. He only cared about his own people, right?
0: Right, he called the Edomites vessels of destruction. This is how Christians should look at Jews. As vessels of destruction. Because they rejected Christ. Because they weren't his sheep in the first place. And because they are the corrupted seed. Of Malachi chapter 2. As Christ also attested. In John chapter 8. John chapter 10. Luke chapter 13 and elsewhere. Adam was the son of God. Even in his fallen state. As Luke attests in chapter 3 of his gospel. Adam's sin did not make him not a son of God. Did I say that right? Adam's sin did not deny him his status as a son of God. Adam was a son of God even in his fallen state, even in his sin. He was still a son of God. The children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 14, they were far from perfect. They were constantly rebellious, but they were still the children of God. And it states that in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and throughout the prophecies of Isaiah and and other prophets where they're still called the children of God, even when they were brought into Assyrian captivity. So being a child of God doesn't depend on whether you're good or bad. Adam was the son of God because God created him, not because of his obedience, and he remained the son of God at a time when he fathered Seth, in spite of his disobedience. And if the children of Israel are still the children of God near idolatry, as we have seen attested in Isaiah and in, and as we may attest in Isaiah or in John chapter eleven, <coughs> then then a the reference to God as the Father and Creator here in Malachi, and later in John chapter eight, it isn't religious; it's racial. Since the Israelites were wholly descended from Adam and Seth, but the Edomites and Canaanites were partially descended from Cain, who was a devil, and partially from the Rephaim, who were in turn from the Nephilim, or the fallen ones, that's the reason why the genealogies in both Old and New Testament are so important in the first place. So Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 16, they attest to the race mixing of ancient Judah. And if the reference to the sin of Judah is the answer to the question, have we not all one father? And if the reference to the sin of Judah in Malachi chapter 2 verse 12 is the answer to the question in verse 10, has not one God created us? Once it is seen that Judah took a wife of the Canaanites, for which reason she was the daughter of a strange God, we see that these are racial references. They're not religious references. They're racial references. Jacob took pagan wives. They weren't daughters of a strange God. He was sent to take pagan wives because they were from his own people, from his own kin. There's no indication in scripture as to what God, Judah's wife, worshipped. So that's not a reference to idolatry. It's a reference to race. There is every reason to believe that she was a bastard. And therefore the people of Judah were not of all all of one God. And they did not all have the same father. Because those descendants of Shelah, who were always there, they were the children of a strange God. So the sin of Judah also explains why, at the time of which Malachi prophesies, the people are depicted to say, we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers. As the Greek poet Hescolis said, the bastard is always the enemy of the true born. In that same manner did Cain despise Abel and murder Abel, which was right at the beginning. And in that same manner, Christ said they sought to kill him because they did the deeds of their father, who was a murderer from the beginning. Then, if at least some of the priests who mingle with the Edomites and Canaanites were not truly Levites in the first place, that would explain the reason for the attitudes of the people, which are reported by the prophet Malachi here, that there are such divisions in the priesthood. And here is the root of the problem, because Judah had married the daughter of a strange God. Judah's first Canaanite wife, with whom he had three sons, we see the story in Genesis chapter 38. So the surviving son, Shelah, was not eligible for the birthright. The birthright fell to Phares and Zara. So we can see also, we can also discern, that Shelah was not considered a legitimate son, regardless of his being attached to Judah. Because when the birthright, when, when the birth of Pharez and Zara came, it was important to note which of them was the firstborn. And the story goes that Zara was thought, it was thought that Zara was going to be firstborn, but Pharez was born first. So, the The kings of Judah were not taken from the tribe of Sheol. They were taken from the tribe of Phares. Ostensibly, on account of the promises to Jacob, Yahweh had mercy upon Judah, even though Judah sinned after the manner of Esau. But Yahweh did not have mercy upon Esau. Esau was made an example. Esau had no legitimate offspring. It was only from Yahweh that Judah did. But Esau had no legitimate offspring. And Paul also mentioned this difference in the mercy dispensed by God in his comparison of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9. So Judah himself is a primary example of a vessel of mercy in Israel. The patriarch Judah took as a wife, the daughter of a strange god. A woman who was not of the race of Adam, she was of the cursed race of Canaan, and ostensibly they were mixed with Kenites and Arethane. Here Malachi warns those of Judea who had done what Judah also did by accepting the seed of Canaan and committing fornication with them. Their children are bastards and they will be cut off forever. And only several centuries later, Christ informs us that the sacrifices of these bastard priests whom he contended with, whom contended with him, they are never accepted. He said he did not know where they were from and they are doomed, regardless of their presumed piety or their apparent good deeds. They themselves show what Christ had meant when he replied when when they replied that they were not born of fornication, esteeming themselves to be legitimate descendants of Abraham, but they weren't. They were race mixed bastards. Malachi chapter 2 proves the reasons why the priesthood was corrupted, which Christ also explained in John chapter 8, John chapter 10, which Paul of Tarsus explained in Romans chapter 9. When you put this all together with Malachi, it is so crystal clear. It cannot be denied.
1: So, so Bill, the, um, even though they, they, they must have understood that Sheila was, was a Canaanite, right? and And even that... They still kept his descendants with them, uh, even though they made, um, you know, the birthright went to Pharez. They just never got rid of them, even though they must have understood partially, right?
0: That They were still dwelling there in the kingdom period, in, in the book of Chronicles, in Netame and Gedara. And, and it must have been understood by the rest of Judah that they were Canaanites. They always seemed to have remained a distinct tribe within Judah. There comes a point when we lose track of them in Scripture. Yeah, and that's inevitable,
1: right? Eventually, the the racial barrier will break if they're amongst you.
0: Absolutely. There comes a point where they just aren't mentioned any longer. But they must have always been there. Because the prophets later explain that Judah was was race-mixing. And that was how Judah was race-mixing. Ezekiel chapter 16. Let me read that real quick. If Bible works will respond for me. I'm sorry, my Bible software program is being sort of quirky this morning. Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, thy birth and thine activity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother a Hittite, and I interpret that to mean that Jerusalem had been race mixed at that time. Jeremiah chapter two helps explain what, what is meant in Ezekiel chapter sixteen that Yahweh planted a pleasant plant and it sprouted strange slips. So Christ goes on to say every plant that my heavenly father has not planted shall be rooted up.
1: And these are all uh, great examples for our people, right? If if we if the CI un, um, ministry one day does spread that you can look at this at Sheila and and Mal- you know the prophecies of Malachi that if people race mix they grow be removed straight away from your community, right?
0: Well, they should be, but they never were. They they aren't today. At at one time in, in the early 19th century and, and in the 18th century in America, I know for a fact that families that race mixed with native Americans in many places were, were immediately separated that, that they, they were rejected by most of the Christian people. They were forced to live in separate communities in, in Massachusetts and, and other States in the North. People that were of native blood or of part native blood that they couldn't, that they weren't allowed to mix generally with the population. Until a
1: certain point that, when
0: liberalism took over.
1: Yeah, and that shows that Christianity did protect the race, right? Yes, for many centuries.
0: It absolutely did. That they were um, – most states – most of the states in America had originally had laws – banning any form of race mixing between blacks and whites, between Native Americans and whites. Different states had different laws in different places, I guess, to meet the needs of that particular region. They had laws forbidding it. And 11 states had laws forbidding it all the way up to the 1970s, I think. As many as 11 states still had, mostly in the South, Because of the Negro problem in the South, as many as 11 states still had laws on their books forbidding race mixing as late as a Supreme Court decision, Loving versus Virginia, 1967, overturned it. Loving versus Virginia was a lawsuit filed against the state of Virginia in the U.S. Supreme Court, but the decision actually affected. Many states. It's like a joke because I was born in 1960 in Virginia and say that this proves that I can't possibly be a nigger <laughs> <laughs> because I was born under those laws, under those laws that forbid race mixing that they it forbid interracial marriage i'm sure there were race mixed people because of illicit sexual activity but the laws forbid interracial marriage of any sort between blacks and whites and that wasn't overturned in in america until 1967 and i think there were at least 11 states that had similar laws And that they were all invalidated by that one Supreme Court decision.
1: Yeah, and you couldn't just walk into a church with a she right? You might get a, um, his name slips my mind, Phineas situation, if you tried to do that, right?
0: And I'm sorry, it was 15 states. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely right. It was 15 states. I was distracted.
1: And it's all um, the due liberalism, you know, that everyone should just be allowed to do what they want. Today, most young people don't even
0: have an idea that these laws existed on the books of, of all these states as late as 1967. That there were um, laws against mixed marriages in California, in in a lot of Western states, in a lot of Northern states. It's not just the South, but that they all, in the age of liberalism, they all disappeared in, in the late 19th and early 20th century, mostly through the courts. So Christian society did protect the integrity of its race throughout history.
1: And paganism never did. It's null and void. It's useless in that regard.
0: Right. that it's, it's, There's no moral preclusion to race mixing in, in any of the paganism that I have ever seen. In fact, in some of them, it's actually promoted in some pagan sects. Okay, well, understanding the corrupted priesthood is an important step in understanding that the Israelites were originally white.
1: So, Is there going to be another podcast next week on this, or or will we come back later? No,
0: we should come back probably with Jacob and Israel in in, in prophecy.
1: Yeah, Um, and and the time of Jacob's trouble, right?
0: I'm sorry, Jacob and Esau in prophecy, in a brief overview of that, yes. I think that's what you wanted to discuss next.
1: Yeah, yeah. That eventually Esau would rule uh, uh, well, over the Israelites. And if the Israelites were to inherit the world, then, then essentially Israel <coughs> must be ruling the world, right? It's the Absolutely. Only way. Yes. Okay, thank you. All right, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you.
0: Praise Yahweh. Good night.